another episode of Issue by Issue Crisis, the only podcast out there going through the entirety of the DC multiverse, uh, issue at a time, starting from Crisis on Infinite Earths number one. As always, I am your host, Nick Byers. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome to Friday. Finally Friday, TGIF, you know all of the things. Or uh, as, as Salem from uh, Sabrina the Teenage Witch would say, thank God it's Fridjaw. Uh, which is a reference to kids who have watched uh, Sabrina the Teenage Witch. I love that show. Own it on box set. Salem's the best. Uh, But let's get into this week's episode. Uh, So this week's episode, we're kind of covering four issues. And I'll explain why in a second. So we're covering Dead Man number one. Fury of Firestorm number 35. Getting back to that Firestorm uh, plotline. Justice League of America number 238. Getting back to the Justice League Detroit. And the Shadow War of Hawkman number one, which is a four-part miniseries. Obviously, we'll be covering that over the course of four months in real, or in universe, not in universe time, but like on the timeline of publication. Uh, so starting with number one, of course. So we actually get to cover an entire miniseries instead of just get the last one and everybody be confused and, and I back out and not uh, cover it. But uh, so we're not going to have any real world history this time because we covered it last episode uh, because these all come out on February 7th, 1985, uh, all with cover dates of May 1985, as it has been for a little bit now. Uh, So the first issue that we're going to cover, we're only going to sort of summarize it. It's Dead Man number one. And you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. This is the beginning of a Dead Man. This is the beginning of a series and specifically about Dead Man, who I think is a really cool and interesting character due to his limitations of not being able to talk to people in real life without possessing uh, someone else's body. But the these seven issues of Dead Man, which we're going to summarize, are reprints of his debut storylines from Strange Adventures. He uh, he debuted in Strange Adventures number 205, and this issue has two stories in it, one from 205, one from 206, and that's how these next seven issues of this story or this series go. And then, due to Crisis on Infinite Earths uh, and, the, and the sort of reboot of the universe, uh, or like the merging of the, the multiverse into one universe... Uh, that this series stops. And he has another series that only gets about four issues, like, in 1986. But those are those are originals. So we'll cover those fully when we get around to those. But these ones, since they're reprints from storylines from 1967, I believe, uh, we're just gonna, I'm just going to summarize them. Uh, in, not in as explicit detail as I normally do. Just to, just to save time and get on to some original stuff. Um, so, Dead Man... Uh, we have a debut on the podcast, Dead Man, Boston Brand, a trapeze artist who is killed in, during his show, and he is blessed or cursed, depending on how you want to look at it, by by a Ramakushna, who brings him back as a sort of ghost that has the ability to possess people, uh, possess people's bodies, uh, and use them as a way to search for his killer, uh, because he has unfulfilled uh, work to be done on Earth, very similar to the Spectre, except uh, he is not the vengeance of Ramakushna. He's just a guy trying to solve his murder. On the production side, uh, the stories from Strange Adventures number 205 and 206, uh, which is what's in this issue, uh, is written by Arnold Drake, 
and penciled by Carmine Infantino and inked by George Russos. Uh, and the story from 206 is written by Arnold Drake and Carmine Infantino, drawn by Neil Adams and inked by George Russos, uh, if I'm pronouncing that last name correctly. So let's get into the summary of these two stories. And the first story is called, Who Has Been Lying in My, capital M-Y, Grave? Uh, and it is summarized as such. After the circus acrobat Boston Brand is killed by a hook-handed sniper with a high-powered rifle during his performance, his ghost remains earthbound. Ramakushna, the spirit of the universe, tells the dead man that he will have the power to walk among men until he finds his murderer. Dead man soon finds that he has the power to enter and control living people's bodies, taking over the body of Tiny, the circus strongman. He breaks up a dope smuggling racket and then begins his search for his killer. And I've read the story, of course. And Boston Brand is a not a very nice guy as a human being. I only know Dead Man from later iterations of himself, specifically in the DC animated universe. And in that, he's kind of very, you know, uh, free-spirited and uh, kind of lackadaisical and, and cracking jokes with his, you know, accent of wherever it comes from. And so this angry sort of uh, troubled man of Boston Brand is very different than the dead man that I know of. Um, but I guess, you know, after being dead and, and realizing the glory of Ramakushna, that, you know, you can change your personality. So... Because uh, he's not very nice to the other members of the circus before he is killed. Um, he wants the circus to survive, so he has to be tough about it. Uh, but he's not very nice to the other people that work there, and so they're not very happy with him. And there's sort of a, at the beginning of the story, it says, any one of these people could be my killer. Because it's all members of the circus that are at his funeral. And he all, he like wronged them or, or hurt their feelings or in some way right before his performance where he died. So uh, that kind of gives the, the a little bit of mystery uh, to, to uh, his killing. It's very uh, uh, murder on the Orient Express where anyone is, everyone is a suspect and anyone can be the killer. Uh, so moving on to the second story in this issue is an eye for an eye. So Jeff Carling, Lorna's half-brother. Lorna is uh, a woman who works at the circus uh, she is the uh, part circus owner, uh, along with formerly Boston Brand. He was also sort of a part owner. And Lorna had a bit of a, a crush, a, a, a endearment towards Boston Brand before his killing. So she was really, really taken just really badly uh, about his killing. Uh, so um, she's, she's something's going on with her half-brother. Um, so Jeff Carling, Lorna's half-brother and part owner of Hill's Circus, insured Boston Brand's life for $10,000, which in 1967 is a lot of money. Uh, it's still a lot of money today, but life insurance policies, I don't think you can get one for that low of a payout. Uh, before Brand's recent demise. Against his sister's wishes, he takes the money from the safe to make a blackmail payment to Morty. Morty is just some guy. Very, very golden age in the sense that this is when he's introduced. We never see him again, and it's not important. He is the leader of Jeff's motorcycle club. Uh, it is revealed that Jeff undertook a contract to kill another gang member, Lenny Dean, and Morty is blackmailing Jeff with a photo of him holding the rifle, which was used to kill Dean. Initially, Deadman suspects Jeff of not only shooting Dean, 
but him too, because since he was shot by a rifle. But he discards both theories when he discovers that Jeff couldn't be in two places at once, and his rifle wasn't capable of making that sh- the shot that killed Dean. After solving the murder case, D- Deadman brings Morty to the cops, where he makes him confess to Dean's killing. Jeff is later cleared of any wrongdoing. So, part part trying to find his murder and part or his murderer, and part just solving crimes along the way. That's Deadman, you know. Uh, and uh, I kind of I was really kind of bummed that these were reprints. I was like, oh, nice, Deadman number one. But uh, yeah, so that's the Deadman issue. There's also a, another short little story, but it doesn't have anything to do with Deadman. It has to do with Kane. Uh, who is not really a character in DC Comics, other than the fact that he is the twin brother of Abel from the Bible. Uh, but that's not important at all. So now let's move on to our second issue where we're going to do it fully like we normally do. Uh, Fury of Firestorm number 35. Uh, we have one debut in this one, uh, which is The Weasel, which if you have seen the James Gunn uh, Suicide Squad, you know the weasel on there. He is a anthropomorphic rodent uh, covered in hair. He is a murderer, uh, serial killer, at least in that. Uh, this weasel we don't really learn a lot about. And this is his legitimate debut. He debuts for the first time in Fury of Firestorm number 35, which is kind of exciting because very rarely on this show do we get first-time debuts, other than Crisis on Infinite Earths, but that's, that doesn't count because that's where we started. Um the production side, uh, this issue was written by Gary Conway, the creator of Firestorm, penciled by Raphael Kayen, Kayenin, Kayenin, I'm sorry, inked by Alan Kupperberg, lettered by Ben Oda, and colored by Nancy Houlihand. Uh, so let's get into it. As always, we will start with the cover. Last time, if you remember, the Fury of Firestorm cover had Firestorm under a giant piece of ice. Uh, going up against the new Killer Frost, uh, Louise Lincoln, who we have met, obviously, in that issue and also in Crisis on Infinite Earths. Uh, But on this cover, Firestorm is in a sort of rocky enclosure, which we later find out is the interior of the um, Hudson nuclear plant that gave Firestorm his powers, you know, fusing Ronnie Raymond and and Martin Stein uh, together. And it was obviously shut down after it, you know, sort of went nuclear and uh, had a meltdown. Uh, But surrounding him is Killer Frost, Louise Lincoln, the new Killer Frost, and Plastique, who we met last issue when she was in prison. So clearly she breaks out of prison. Uh, And it has some some words on it, and I'll read the words now. It says, Look out, hothead. If Killer Frost doesn't get you, Plastique, the bomb woman, or the woman bomb, the woman bomb, Okay, Will. Uh, so, yeah, so Plastique is exploding things behind Firestorm, and uh, Killer Frost is throwing icicles at him from the front. Uh, and this is the... I, we'll, we'll, I'll, you'll find out when, the, when we get into the comic itself. Uh, but this, something develops in this story that makes Plastique more of the, the character that I know of her and probably more modern people know of her rather than someone who just carries around bombs and throws bombs and stuff. So let's get into the issue itself. Uh, We start exactly where we left. Uh, Firestorm is covered by this giant block of ice. It's huge. Killer Frost is standing there. 
and she is basically um, not go not goading him, but and not berating him, but like taunting him because she's talking about how the intense cold it first uh, gives you a sense of exhilaration, then a growing numbness, and finally sleep, followed by death. Uh, and she says, when you meet my old friend Death, be sure to tell him Killer Frost sent you. Uh, so Killer Frost then basically flies away. She flies out of uh, this laboratory that Louise Lincoln was working in previously. And Firestorm is left holding this giant block of ice, unable to move it. And it sort of crushes him. It looks like it crushes him because he can't. He can't use his uh, molecular molecular re- structuring powers, atomic restructuring powers, uh, but he can use his strength. But he doesn't seem to be strong enough, so it looks like the ice crushes him. We then cut outside to the firemen. They are, you know, scared for Firestorm because he went in there about five minutes ago and hasn't come out yet. Um, but they, you know, they're worried about him. They're worried about Louise Lincoln, what happened to her, and, and is she okay, and, and any other people in there. And Dr. Frost comes out, not Dr. Frost, I guess she was, I guess she is Dr. Frost now, because I believe Louise Lincoln is a doctor, but Killer Frost comes out, and she says, Louise Lincoln is dead, lovely, mindless creature who traded on beauty. She did not deserve to live. Now I live in her place, warn the world, the Ice Maiden cometh, which is a cool line, like the Ice Man cometh, but it's female. Hell yeah. Uh, So she basically destroys the fire trucks and kind of knocks out or you know batters the firemen with icicles and then flies off we then cut to the federal penitentiary gosh uh at hudson new york where plastique is being held prisoner because she's a criminal she's a terrorist uh and she was caught and so uh we see her being met by her uh lawyer uh, and his, her lawyer uncovers a suit, her suit, her plastic suit, that he smuggled in in what looks like his briefcase, uh, in a hidden compartment in his briefcase. And she's like, well, this, this isn't going to help. If there's no bombs in it or on it, then it's just, a, it's, just a, it's just a costume. And he says, well, yeah, but I mean, I, t- I told you, I spoke with your friends up in Montreal, and they have sent with him... An experimental procedure, basically a big syringe, developed by the doctor. And that's bold, so it's a very, you know, it's a very specific doctor. And it's a subdermal injection of a formula designed to release chemical energy via digital contact, so her fingers. Something they call Project Bomb Burst. And uh, Plastique, who is French, says, Mon Dieu, it was only rumor, theory. When I left Quebec months ago, so it is finally a fait accompli and the side effects. That's right. French accent. Um, he says, it could kill you. And she says, better, than, better that than this living death in a capitalist prison, mon ami. Do it. Uh, and so he does. He injects her and she yells out in pain. The guards bust down the conference room, which is where prisoners and lawyers talk. So they have confidentiality. And inside, uh, Plastique is huddled over. She seems to be having some sort of reaction. It looks like she has... Have you ever seen scarification on people from uh, Africa? Um, In pop culture, specifically Killmonger in Black Panther 2. Or Black Panther 1. Black Panther 1. 
uh, had those sort of bumps all over his body, uh, which were a kill. That's what it kind of looks like. Her skin uh, has all over it. Uh, I think it's just sweat, but it really looks like those scarification marks. Um, and she, uh, the, the guards want to get the prison clinic doctor to come, and, to come and take a look at her, but she opens her eyes. Her eyes are red, pure red. She says no, or she says, no, I do not think so. And she then touches the ground and causes an explosion, uh, knocking the uh, two guards back. Uh, I don't know what happened to her lawyer, but uh, that's not important, I guess. We then cut back to uh, Exeter, New Jersey, where Firestorm is underneath this block of ice. He is alive. He's not been killed by this block of ice. But then Martin Stein inside, because he is the internal, uh, he's the sort of uh, advisor and the brains, uh, has to goad Ronnie, who controls the body, into, you know, exerting as much force as he can. Uh, and he does this by calling uh, Ronnie a dumb jock, which Ronnie calls himself all the time, but he doesn't like the fact that that's what he appears to be on the outside. And, I mean, in real, all reality, he's not a dumb jock. He's just a jock who is, I mean, probably average intelligence. But So Martin Stein just says, oh, you're, you're, you're exactly what you always say you are. You're just a dumb, uneducated jock. Um, and so he says, you know, he screams no, and he uses as much effort as he possibly can, crushes the block on top of him, and he, he gets out, and he's like, uh, you really know how to hurt a guy, Professor. And Martin says, forgive me, Ronald, but you must admit, my strategy worked. And Ronnie says, well, okay, but tell me, tell me the truth, Martin. You really didn't mean that stuff, did you? And Ron Martin says, you know better, Ronald. Turning to more immediate concerns, they have to fly out and they go and search for uh, Killer Frost. And Ronnie is like, well, that can't be Killer Frost. Killer Frost is dead. And Killer Frost was Dr. Crystal Frost, who debuted in Firestorm number three, uh, the first series, the one that got canceled after four issues. And she is the sort of blueprint for future Killer Frosts, where... She's a heat vampire, basically. She needs to steal heat from sources, people, stuff like that, uh, in order to sustain her cold visage, like her cold state. And if she doesn't, she'll just die. Because, I mean, if she's not at, like, sub-freezing temperatures, then she dies. Um, but when she tried to absorb Firestorm's heat, she couldn't handle it. Uh, so she basically just melted away into steam, and this happened in Fury of Firestorm number 21. So it's been about 14, 14, 13, 14 issues since Killer Frost was around, uh, which is a year. So that's pretty cool. Uh, they then find out that it is Louise Lincoln who is the new Killer Frost, and they fly out off north towards the Hudson River where someone pointed that she went. So they then search for an hour and are unable to find her. But we do see in, in a panel that Killer Frost is hiding behind a tree, watching Killer Frost search for her. Uh, they fly back to Concordance Research, where Martin Stein works. And this is the point where Martin wants to talk to Ronnie about uh, Martin's career, which we learned last time he's been offered a position at Vandermeer University in Pittsburgh, which is not New York. And that's not where Ronnie lives, uh, which we'll get into. We then cut to the Daily Express, the newspaper that Ronnie's dad, Ed, is the editor of. 
and uh, he is talking to uh, Felicity Smoke, the comic one, uh, the comic book version, with black hair and not uh, at all connected to Green Arrow. And she asks him if he's still free for dinner. Uh, she said, he says yes. He makes a joke about let's see what kind of dinner a city editor's salary buys, and she's like, well, you know, I'll buy. And he says, well, then how do you how do you think about how do you feel about the Four Seasons? Uh, which is an expensive place to eat, the Four Seasons Hotel. Uh, the restaurant there is not cheap. One would presume I've never been. I don't have any money. Uh, so they are on a date, and they're having conversations, and they tell each other about their lives. Felicity was a uh, lawyer. She, After her parents died, she finished law school and was uh, working at a Wall Street securities firm. You know, those typical people who ruin the economy for their own pleasure. Uh, and she says that she realized that she was miserable. Like, she loves the law. She loves doing law stuff, but she hates lawyers. And when and Ed says, present company excluded, neither can I, uh, which means he hates lawyers, but he likes Felicity. Uh, and she says, oh, enough about me. What about you, Ed Raymond? What's your story? And then we hear a very buckwild tale that I did not know about, and uh, I mean, maybe it came up earlier in this series, uh, but so apparently Ed Raymond is not his real name. His real name is Ed Rockwell, which would res- presume that Ronnie's real name is Ronnie Rockwell, which that's a cool name. That's a pretty good one. Uh, Ronnie Raymond is good, too. Still alliterative, but Ronnie Rockwell. Wow. Uh, he reveals that 15 years ago, so Ronnie would have been either a baby or not even born yet, one of the two. Uh, must have been must have been born. Uh, he, uh, Ed, uh, testified against a mobster named Shine, and uh, his people killed Ed's wife in revenge. And so Ronnie and oh yeah, Ronnie of course would have to be alive if his mom is dead. Duh. Uh, Ronnie and Ed had to go into witness protection, and uh, they had their names changed to Raymond. And then a few years ago, they came back to the city. Shine found out tried to have Ed killed, and then died in a gun battle. So they're out of danger now since the person trying to kill them is dead. Then after dinner, they are walking along maybe Central Park, who knows, uh, and and Felicity says, oh, I, I thought I had problems losing my computer software company thanks to Firestorm's stupidity. Remember, she hates Firestorm and wants to ruin him. And Ed says, I don't have problems, Felicity, not anymore, just memories. Some bad, some good. Life goes on, and we make new memories, some good, some better, as they lean in, their faces getting closer to each other, and they kiss. Bum, bum, bum. Kissing. Uh, Back across town at Concordance Research, Martin Stein has revealed to Ronnie about his job offer and the fact that he's probably going to take it, uh, the job offer at Vandermeer University in Pittsburgh. And Ronnie's, of course, not... Not taking it well, because if they are in different locations, they cannot become Firestorm. They have to be in contact with each other physically to become Firestorm. Uh, And so without Firestorm, he's just Ronnie Raymond. He's nothing. He's a nobody. He's a dumb jock. And uh, Martin, Martin Stein is the one who says dumb jock. And Ronnie says no. And Martin says, well, that's what you think of yourself, Ronald, isn't it? As long as I've known you, that's how you've described yourself to me, a dumb jock. How it must hurt to see yourself that way. And Ronnie's like, well, the truth hurts. 
And Martin says, well, I mean, lies hurt more, especially the ones we tell ourselves. Um, and he says, you may be a jock, but you're not dumb. You are, you are my partner in Firestorm. You are the, you're the one who controls everything. You're the one who does all of the physical movement of Firestorm. And, and not just anybody can do that. And, I mean, they've done good work in the last few months. They've only been Firestorm for a few months, but they've done good work in the last few months. They've thrived. They've triumphed over evil, over villainy, stuff like that. Uh, when suddenly, uh, well, actually, sorry, I should say, um, Ronnie says, yeah, then that might all be true, but the thing is, Professor, dumb or not, if you leave, I'll miss you. God, I'll miss you, which is nice. They kind of have this, I don't want to say father-son, because I don't, I don't know about Ronnie's relationship with his father. I think it's okay, but maybe not, but definitely like this sort of maybe older brother situation because uh, i don't know how old martin is supposed to be in this if he's supposed to be in his 30s or 40s cuz obviously on uh, legends of tomorrow and flash martin stein is older he has white hair he's an older gentleman uh, but uh, just then another employee who we met last time the sort of fitness bro of concordance research comes in and it's like martin you got a tv you got to turn it on something's happening at that old nuclear plant of yours hudson nuclear and so they turn on the television and it's revealed that killer frost has you know kind of gone inside forced her way inside of this defunct nuclear power plant icing a, a watchman a night watchman an elderly night watchman she iced an old man and after she went inside she has not put out any sort of communication so that she's not demanding any sort of ransom or blackmail money or something like that for, for like holding this nuclear plant hostage and possibly threatening to, you know, make it go nuclear or something like that. She hasn't done anything. She's been silenced. So this jock bro whose name, I don't know if we ever learned or if we did, I've forgotten it, turns around and is like, yeah. He turns around and he says, you built that plant, Martin. Any idea why that frost woman is he's cut off because he turns around and Martin and Ronnie are both gone. They have obviously gone to a, looks like a stairwell, turned into Firestorm, and flown off. And as they're flying over to the power plant, they're hypothesizing that Killer Frost, or Killer Frost 2's powers must be the same as Killer Frost 1. And so she's going to use the energy from this power plant, which is still, I mean, it's still highly radioactive on the inside. That's why it's shut down. You can't just demolish, you know, nuclear power plants. They have a lot of energy in them still radioactivity and she can use that energy to sustain her which i mean i guess as long as she doesn't hurt anybody what is she i mean she's trespassing sure but if she just wants to use the radioactivity that honestly is just sitting there just sitting there being radioactive what's the problem but maybe she's maybe she's gonna have plans to do something bad um so uh they fly over there and as, as Martin is explaining why Killer Frost could be over there, he reveals why there is a danger to her being in there because it could breach the sort of containment of the radioactivity leaking out into the surrounding areas and giving people, you know, cancer and stuff. Uh, and Ronnie says, oh, great, cheer me up some more. At least things can't get much worse. And we see an image of the power plant and standing on a sort of rocky outcropping overlooking it we see the image of Plastique in her costume. We then have an interlude, like we had last time, 
where we go to Vandermeer University. And it's explained the history a little bit of Vandermeer University. It was founded by a grant from uh, Baron Artemis Vandermeer, uh, clearly Dutch, I believe. Uh, it's well known for its record of academic excellence in science and the arts. Uh, it's a quiet, dignified center of higher education. And fake, Vandermeer doesn't exist, I'm pretty sure. Uh, we then see a who I originally thought was going to be Catwoman or something because it's a it's a feline like figure. Uh, I bet, although it is hairy and uh, it's it's going to be revealed to be the weasel. But uh, in the shadows of this sort of office building in Vandermeer, and he goes to a filing cabinet and he pulls out a folder that on the top says Professor Martin Stein, and he says Stein. So you're next. You won't last long. I'll see to that. Suddenly, a night guard comes into the room, shines a flashlight at the weasel. The weasel, we see the full weasel. He is nasty to look at. His face is not fun. I mean, the weasel in that uh, Suicide Squad movie was also not good to look at. So that tracks. I'll post a picture of the weasel uh, on the Instagram and all the socials and stuff. And then he jumps out towards the night guard, and the interlude ends there. We then cut back to, or cut to for the first time, Killer Frost, inside the power plant. And she's absorbing all the energy coming off of the radioactivity. Uh, she says it makes her skin tingle yet. That's uh, that's cancer uh, forming in your body. Uh, or whatever your ice powers do. Uh, so she's, you know, trying to absorb it. Uh, when suddenly Firestorm flies down and turns presumably the molecules in the air uh, into a lead shield. Uh, to block the radioactive energy from getting to Killer Frost. Uh, Killer Frost then attempts to, obviously, shoot them with ice. And uh, they go uh, insubstantial, uh, which they do by making their atomic density zero. So they are not uh, atomically dense. Their their atoms are spread very far apart. uh, And there's not very many of them, presumably. Uh, so they are immaterial, so all of her blasts go through um, them, and uh, they are going to then attempt. I feel like using Firestorm, using pronouns they and them, makes more sense, right? Because it's multiple consciousnesses inside of one person. It's kind of like, well, I guess it's not really like two-spirit at all from Native American cultures, but there's multiple consciousnesses and personalities inside this one being, so I feel like they fits better. I don't know. Tell me what you think. If you think it should be he, since they're both he's, or it should be they, because there's plural of them. Uh, so they are going to attempt to then turn this lead shield into a freezing unit, because the colder that uh, Killer Frost gets, the less her powers work, which is a weird sort of uh, twist. Uh, but unfortunately, while they're insubstantial, they can't use their atomic restructuring abilities because they don't have enough energy to uh, do it and stay insubstantial. Uh, but apparently this is the first time that this has ever happened, so that's an interesting development in their powers. So uh, Firestorm says, uh, save the questions for later. If I've, got, if I've got to turn solid to use my powers, I'll turn solid. What can happen in half a second? And then we get uh, the second to last page, uh, from behind Firestorm is Plastique, and she said, um, and she uses her new abilities, her new touch explosives, to explode the ground out from underneath of Firestorm, flinging him through the air, where he lands, 
and Plastique is kneeling next to him, and she points at Killer Frost and says, Killer Frost, I presume? Or, I sorry, she has a French accent. Killer Frost, I presume? Nope, that's, I don't know what that, I've lost it. I've lost it. Killer Frost, I presume? My name is Plastique, and I have for you a proposition. And that's the end. It says, to be continued. And it says, next, slowly I turned. Niagara Falls. I don't, that doesn't really make any, slowly I turned Niagara Falls. I turned it the other way, made it go up, set it down. I don't know. I guess we'll have to find out in, like, ten more episodes of this show. Uh, so that's Fury of Firestorm number 36. Uh, I mean, I, I like Firestorm as a character. I like the dynamic of having two consciousnesses controlling one superhero, and his powers are cool. His look is great. Um, so I, yeah, I'm a big fan of Firestorm. I'm, I'm glad we're, we're back at it with the Fire, Fury of Firestorm. Uh, But let's move on to Justice League of America, another title that I really liked last time, and hopefully it continues to be enjoyable. Uh, Justice League of America number 238, uh, released February 7th, 1985. Cover date, May 1985, like I said at the top of the episode. No debuts in this issue. Uh, We're just going to be continuing and concluding the maestro Russian storyline that we stopped on in the last issue. Uh, on the production side of this issue, we have written by Gary Conway, uh, penciled by Chuck Patton, inked by Mike Macklin, lettered by Ben Oda, and colored by Eugene D'Angelo. So let's get into it. The cover of this issue has the new Justice League Detroit with uh, Elongated Man, Ralph Dibney, Aquaman, Steel, uh, Gypsy, Vibe, Vixen and Martin Manhunter. Martin Martin Manhunter. <laughs> Hi, I'm Martin Manhunter. No, Martian Manhunter. Uh, all rushing towards Superman and Wonder Woman and Flash that are being sort of entangled by this green energy, which we know is Maestro's synthesizer energy. Uh, for whatever reason, Zatanna is not on this cover. I guess you probably just couldn't fit her. Uh, but... She is also, of course, on the team. Uh, So let's get into... Oh, sorry. I should say. I should say. There is a little action bubble that says Superman, Wonder Woman, Flash. Only the new JLA can save them now. And Aquaman says, let's show what we can do. So they're going to show what they can do. And they're going to save the day. Uh, So it starts off where it left off last time, where... Uh, what's his face? Oh, what is his face? He's a Russian. I read it. I read it. What's his name? It's like, oh, Anton, General Anton Gorky of the Soviet Union uh, is having his maestro play a synthesizer to kill Wonder Woman. The Flash protests, like, hey, you're not even giving her a chance to fight back. And Anton Gorky's like, well, of course, I don't want her to fight back, Flash, you dummy. Uh, and he's using, he's doing this to show his might to the Kremlin so that they will bow to his wishes, uh, to what his course of action would be. And Superman brings up the fact that, hey, if you kill Wonder Woman, you'll get more than recognition from the Kremlin. You'll get recognition from the Justice League. So then you'll be fighting a two-part, two-front war, uh, against the Kremlin, against your, you know, superiors at the Kremlin and also against the Justice League, which is not someone you want to go up against. Gorky then says, hmm, I must think about this because it's a it's a good point. That's a difficult war to win. 
Uh, just ask, you know, Nazi Germany, how easy is winning a, a two-front war? It's not, because they didn't do it. They failed. Uh, so Gorky and Maestro leave this all-black room uh, with the paralyzed uh, Superman, Wonder Woman, and Flash laying there. We then cut to the lost prototype jet, uh, L-O-S-T, it's an uh, acronym, of course, uh, that the Justice League Detroit flies around in. They are flying uh, down from the North Pole because the way to fly, it's weird, the way to fly to Russia uh, or uh, many places in the north uh, of the globe and south, but differently, you fly up towards the North Pole and then down, it's actually shorter than going just straight around. Uh, science. And I think that's right. Don't, I mean, if I got it wrong, tell me, but I think that's right. Uh, and so they are flying towards Soviet airspace because um, Steele's grandpa, he has CIA contacts, and they let him let them know where they're holding Superman, Wonder Woman, and Flash. Uh, so the Justice League is going to rescue them to find out where they've been these last three weeks and why they went to the now defunct space shuttle, not space shuttle, space satellite, Justice League satellite. Um, uh, and they, they're kind of contemplating, like, how do you, how would the Russians even have the ability to do this to three of, you know, two of the most powerful and one of the fastest superheroes on the planet? Like, Superman's invincible, Wonder Woman's near invincible, Flash is faster than the speed of sound, faster than the speed of light at times. Then Vixen and Steel uh, talk about the sort of news coverage that the new Justice League Detroit has been getting. Uh, Steel says, oh, how could, I, how could I forget what the newspaper said? How can four second stringers, so that'd be Aquaman, Elongated Man, Zatanna, and Martian Manhunter, and three neophytes, Steel, Vibe, and Vixen, which means neophytes means like, base, like young, younger, new, babies basically baby superheroes replace even one superman this new justice league is doomed to disaster that was before gypsy joined them officially uh but the thing that heats steel's pot uh is how those guys were so sure that they'd fail before they'd even gone into battle what gives them the right well freedom of press freedom of speech that's what gives them the right uh but uh vixen says fear fear of change and I mean, it's it's fair point, you know. If you had, if you had a powerhouse team like the OG Seven of the Justice League, um, you would, and then obviously it expands later. But protecting you and your country, and then suddenly, the most powerful person on the team is, uh, hmm, I'd probably say either Martian Manhunter or Zatanna, depending on what you mean by strength. And then the rest is who the rest are, I would, I would be a little bit worried about that change too. Because, uh, I mean, they're not, they're not a powerhouse team. Certainly not. They're a very versatile team. And they cover a lot of bases, but they are not a powerhouse team. Um, but just then, three, or not three, two Russian MiGs, MIGs, which are jets, if you've seen, uh, fighter jets, if you've seen Top Gun, uh, are on the tail of the lost prototype jet. And... Uh, we then cut away, before they can do anything about that, to a couple of interludes. Interlude one has to do with uh, General Maxai uh, from a made-up country that 
they don't mention the name of and I cannot remember, but it is the country that uh, Vixen originally comes from before she moved to the United States with her parents to get away from this terrible leader of this country. And he wants uh, this guy, he's getting a massage from a a bikini-clad woman uh, while his lieutenants talk to him. So he's he's covered by just a towel. He's a very buff guy. Let's say that. He, he hits the gym. Uh, and he is, he's telling his men that he wants, he wants Vixen and he wants the tattoo totem, which is what gives her her uh, animal powers. And his lead lieutenant uh, says, General Maxi, the Justice League interfered. We were helpless. And General Maxi then s- stands up and grabs a what looks like a boomerang, but it's n- he doesn't throw it like a boomerang, uh, but it's got blades on the outside. And he throws it and cuts the neck of that the guy who just told him that. And he then says to the rest, contact our agents in the network to remind uh, our terrorist friends that it is the Ox, who is General Maxi, who controls the network's purse. And I have yet to consider their funding requests for the next fiscal year. Tell them I want Vixen. Find her. Bring her to me. Bring the Tantu Totem. Tell them they must do this or they will be or there will be hell to pay. And you know what's weird? Like, I don't know if this is just a way to show that he's evil, as if cutting the neck, uh, cutting the throat of his own man, like his own person that works under him uh, in his employ, isn't enough to show that he's a very bad guy. After he says, tell them they must do this, uh, well, actually, while he's saying that, he's sort of holding the chin of the woman who is giving him a massage. And then... After that, he just, like, backhands her across the face for no reason. Um, Which, like, sure, establish he's a bad guy, but I don't think there's any need for, like, necessary violence against innocent people, innocent women. I just don't think that's necessary. But it was the 80s. So I guess guess it was fine? I don't know. Um, We then cut to a second interlude where we see uh, Mother Wyndham, who is the elderly sort of sage of the Detroit neighborhood where the Justice League has their headquarters and she's out for a stroll you know she's old, she's old so she needs to you know stay mobile to to you know fight off lethargy and sickness and stuff if you're an old person out there you should be moving around because it's bad for you to be sedentary for so long she notices that a fancy black car has circled uh, the area where the Justice League has their headquarters, secret headquarters, I might, might add, uh, multiple times, at least twice, and so she's like, hmm, I wonder what that's about, and I wonder if it has anything to do with the Justice League. It doesn't feel right in these aged bones, she says, so her bones are telling her something's wrong. We then cut back to the lost prototype jet, Zatanna and Martian Manhunter being the only two who can fly at the same speeds as the jet, because I will say... Vixen can fly. She can only fly as fast as animals, though. So, and animals, uh, I'm pretty sure, can't fly as fast as uh, supersonic jets. So, they go outside, uh, and Zatanna calls down lightning uh, using a druid spell. She calls lightning. Uh, Just kidding. She uses backwards magic to call lightning down from the sky and zap at uh, the jets to kind of get them off their tail. Uh, everybody inside, uh, Vibe and Steel and, and Gypsy are all very, very uh, awed at this because this is probably one of the first times a 
they've seen Zatanna in action, because I don't know if they fought anybody other than each other <laughs> in the last issue. Uh, so, so this is, might be the first time they're seeing Zatanna's powers, and like I said, Zatanna is probably one of the most powerful ones on this team. We then cut to the uh, Gorky estate, the private estate where Anton Gorky is holding the the Justice, uh, the not Justice League, the uh, Superman, Wonder Woman, and Flash, and also other mental patients. Uh, and he is asking uh, Maestro, you know, tell him to the truth uh, about what he should do. And uh, Maestro says that he should kill Wonder Woman and depose the cowards in the Kremlin and achieve your destiny. Just then, uh, an underling comes and gives word about uh, information from their spies in air defense, the Russian air defense, who have clocked an intruder aircraft flown by American superheroes. Um, and Gorky's like, well, wait, Superman, Superman said stuff about this. Okay, prepare yourself, Maestro. These heroes uh, are going to come to try to save their friends, uh, and you're going to be needed. And Maestro says, I will be ready, as he looks up in the sky. We then cut to uh, inside of the estate, uh, in the mental facility area of it, uh, where two of the prisoners, prisoners, well, I guess they are prisoners, but um, residents of the, of the mental facility, uh, are tricking a guard into coming into their room by saying that one of them has killed the other, or one of them has killed someone. And the guard comes in and says, kill yourselves if you want. It makes no difference to, but before he can finish, he is hit over the head by a chair. Uh, three uh, inmates, or maybe, maybe no, I think it's only two, two uh, inmates and uh, Dimitri, who is a guard, um, wrap Flash and Superman and Wonder Woman up in sort of cloaks, put them on wheelchairs, and start wheeling them out. Uh, they, you know, they say, you know, keep your voices down because um, I'm trying to pretend like I'm taking you to therapy, like you're inmates that are being taken to therapy. When suddenly another guard is like, hey, wait a minute, you're not supposed to be on this floor to Dimitri, the, the orderly. Uh, when uh, Superman realizes that he can use his heat vision, or he tries to use his heat vision, and it works, and so he zaps the foot of the the enemy guard, and he says, oh, quick, get the fire extinguisher. My foot's on fire. And so then Dimitri off-screen clongs him, and that's the, that's the onomatopoeia word. It's clong, K-L-O-N-G, the guard across the head, knocking him out. We then cut back to the... Uh, dog fight that we are seeing the, between the lost prototype and the two Russian MIGs. And they're realizing that Zatanna's not trying to actually hit them. They're trying, she's trying to just sort of mess them up because none of them are, none of the lightning strikes are actually hitting these planes because she doesn't want to hurt them. They're technically innocent. They're just, they're just doing what they're told. And so if she doesn't have to kill them, she won't. This isn't the golden age. You can't just do like her father does and just willy nilly kill people and turn people to stone. Uh, one of them attempts to shoot at Zatanna to knock her off the wing or kill her straight up. Uh, when his uh, Gatling gun uh, breaks off of his of his plane, uh, and he's like, "What? My cannon? What shattered them?" And uh, off screen, in also in Russian, it says, "I did, comrade." And we see Martian Manhunter, and he rips the uh, cockpit cover off and uh, causing ejection of that pilot uh, and presumably does it to the other one because the other one it, we don't see what happens to the other one 
uh, they, uh, Martian Manhunter and Zatanna then uh, climb back inside of the Lost Prototype, and uh, Martian Manhunter is commenting like, I have such a strange effect on people. I'm not that frightening in appearance, am I, Zatanna? And she's about to answer when Vixen says, Not in my book, Big Green. Matter of fact, I like my man tall and lean. And he's tall and he's lean. And <laughs> under her breath, um, Zatanna says she likes men, period. Uh, kind of to, uh, to it an aside, but also uh, Ralph is right there. Ralph Dibney, elongated man. And he's like, it, you know, I think it's time they finally starting, starting to sink in for me, him being a detective, he probably should have noticed earlier, that you don't like uh, Vixen very much. He says, you don't think much of that lady, do you, Z? And she says, lady? What lady? And Ralph says, where's the Zatanna I remember, the one who loved everyone as a sister or a brother? And he says, what's with Vixen that rubs you the wrong way? And I mean, I don't want to, I mean, Vixen is black, and I don't, think that's if that's the underlying reasoning behind this because zatanna explains it as this call it chemistry i can't explain it i've never felt this way about another human being never i've tried to like her ralph really i have but she makes my skin crawl and i mean zatanna's had to have met a black person before right so i don't think it's that but it's just it's very weird or a coincidence that zatanna has an unanswerable hatred for the only black character on this team like is that not weird does that not like strike you as weird and i mean maybe they didn't think about that when they were writing it maybe they did maybe that's what we're supposed to be reading into it but i don't really like to think of zatanna as being racist but uh maybe she is uh she says uh, or ralph says maybe it's the way she treats men she certainly lets you know she's interested um, and Satana says, and it seems like she's interested all the time. Maybe it's a, maybe it's an attention thing. I, I don't like to boil female characters down to being like, I don't like you because you get more attention from men. But I mean, it's the '80s, so maybe that is the reasoning that you know Gary Conway put behind this reasoning of why Zatanna doesn't like Vixen because Vixen is is the new thing on the block, and she's very upfront about the fact that she thinks that you know Martian Manhunter and and other members of the team are attractive, which, like, fair enough, you know. I, I more people should probably be upfront about you know what they like, but uh, I, I don't like that either for female characters because it's it's such a such a cliche. But they then arrive at the uh, private estate of General Anton Gorky, and they're trying to plan what their uh sort of game plan should be to their approach and gypsy suggests why don't we sneak up on them through that river that's partially frozen over and Ockman says i'll say this young lady you may be a habitual liar you may or may not be a true gypsy romani person uh but your instincts are dead on dead on target uh so we then cut down cut back to the uh, state grounds where uh, the sort of uh, covert escape attempt has moved outside. And uh, Dimitri explains Allegro, who is the former wielder of the synth- synthesizer that Maestro uses. He explains why Allegro defected back to Russia after living, uh, after, after escaping from his asylum in New York. And Demetri explains that Allegro, uh, his parents were 
uh, a composer and a great soprano singer. And they left uh, Russia because they were white Russians. And if you know anything about the, uh, the conflict that led to the USSR, uh, it was white Russians versus red Russians. Which, if I'm correct in my Russian history, basically red Russians were, uh, I believe, led by Lenin and were pro-communism. And white Russians were pro-monarchy, uh, which was an auto, auto, basically autocracy, under the czars, uh, the final czar of Nicholas II. Uh, so they were white Russians, and after, obviously, the Red Russians won, it was not great to be a white Russian in Russia. So they defected to America and sought their fame uh, and success, just like they'd known in Russia before the revolution. But unfortunately, they never got it in America. There's, I mean, I don't know why. Maybe there's more more people with musical skill in America. Maybe that's because people with musical skill go to America to seek their fortune, so that the the pool is is glutted with candidates, uh, but they, when they were raising Allegro, they told him of the, a sort of sanitized, uh, rose-colored glasses version of Russia and its great musical heritage, which is true. Russia has a great musical heritage um, prior to the USSR. I don't know if they have a lot of arts and things uh, post uh, post the takeover of the USSR, uh, by the USSR. Uh, so after, you know, after being defeated by the Justice League, uh, he said enough with America, Allegro did. At this point in time, his parents are dead and he has grown up and created the synthesizer and, and taken on the Justice League and been stopped and put into, uh, an asylum. And he escapes and comes to Russia with his synthesizer and uses it as a price to be admitted, I guess, to this asylum. I would want freedom, but I guess somehow he got into this asylum. And But Dimitri says he thinks he's finally learned that the cost of choosing fantasy over reality. So he chose fantasy, which was Russia, the Russia that his parents told him about him, over reality of the reality of what Russia is actually like. So they open the door, and standing outside the door uh, is Anton Gorky. And he has just received word from his spies in air defense that a certain intruder aircraft has disappeared from all radar screens. And his reading of that is that the intruder aircraft, the lost prototype, has been shot down rather than that hit. It has escaped the two uh, MiG fighters and radar uh, detection. And so he's ready. He says, okay, well, the Justice League aren't going to be a problem because they've been handled. Uh, so I'm going to now kill Wonder Woman. Uh, and uh, the Flash, I believe it's the Flash, maybe it's Superman, asks, do you really think the Kremlin will hand you power just because you kill one of us? What will, what will a killing prove? And Gorky says, if you need to ask that, then you do not understand us at all. Guards, take the woman, kill her. When suddenly, crash with a K, K-R-A-S-H, uh, out from the frozen river nearby come Aquaman, Elongated Man, Vixen, uh, and Martian Manhunter, and inside of a protective bubble, Zatanna, Vibe, Gypsy, and Steel. This is a confusing for me. So Aquaman I get, he is immune to cold because of his living underneath the ocean where it gets incredibly cold. 
Uh, Vixen, I also understand she can use her Tantu Totem to get Walrus-like uh, protection, Blubber protection, uh, and the swimming abilities of whatever animal she chooses. And Martian Manhunter, of course, I understand he is basically like Superman. He is impervious to cold because he can exist in the vacuum of space. Um, and then, but then I don't understand elongated man he's wearing earmuffs so that's good his ears are covered and protected from the cold but i feel like a very cold elongated man would be like mm, no stretching because i don't know if you ever tried to stretch a rubber band when it's frozen it just snaps so i don't know why he's not also in the protective bubble but he's not they crash out of the, uh, the ice and as they're like taking down uh these russian soldiers soldiers of gorky's uh, we see in three different shots, uh, a shot of Superman, a shot of Wonder Woman, and a shot of the Flash. And they're doing that thing where they're each saying a part of a sentence. But if you watch their entire face the whole time, they'd be saying the whole sentence themselves as well. So it goes, Superman says, who? Wonder Woman says, in Hera's name. And then Flash says, are they? Which is, for some of them, it's fair. But I mean, they know Martian Manhunter. They know... Uh, Zatanna, they know Elongated Man. So, and Aquaman, obviously. So it's not like, you can't be like, who are they? It's like, clearly this is some sort of team. But obviously they don't know Vibe, Steel, or Vixen, or Gypsy. So, after, uh, or in the midst of taking down these, these Russian soldiers, Aquaman says, we'll have to fill you in later, Flash. Let's say for now, they've been there have been some changes made while you were away because they were gone for like three weeks which is not a lot of time for things to change so drastically but they have um uh so flash then says that's an understatement are these people new members of the league and vixen says flash we are the league just go with it you'll catch on uh gorky is then kind of shocked because he didn't expect them to come from the water presumably because it's frozen and he says uh he needs maestro his music i I need him now uh and then we see a scene of elongated man and steel and martian manhunter doing a sort of double slingshot of these soldiers uh so martian manhunter and elongated man have sort of twisted their bodies together because martian manhunter with his shape changing ability shape-shifting abilities he can change his structure very similarly to elongated man's uh, but obviously more extent. They've grabbed uh, hands, and they're sort of stretching back. Steel is stretching elongated man back to you know, increase the tension. And then they release, and they kind of slingshot these two different groups of these soldiers together, making a big kathump. Uh, and they get Superman and Wonder Woman and the Flash out of their wheelchairs. They are still paralyzed, obviously. Uh, when suddenly the maestro's music comes in from off-screen... And it, it forms into these uh, one, two, three, four, five different sort of uh, monsters, creatures. One is a fire, like a little tiny fire guy, like oh, probably only eight feet tall because uh, he's only a little bit taller than like Vibe. And there's a large steel uh, or met- metallic one fighting steel. Uh, there's a sort of werewolf looking one fighting Vixen. There's a weird sort of pterodactyl slash Chinese paper dragon looking one shooting fire at Martian Manhunter and Zatanna. And there is a, looks like 
six-armed, kind of like, um, is that Vishnu? Is that Vishnu in Indian? Uh, yes, yeah, kind of similar to Vishnu uh, from, from Hindu uh, religion, uh, fighting or kind of fighting all three of Gypsy, Aquaman, and Elongated Man. It's stretching, it's stretching Elongated out, Man out really, really far, uh, which I'm sure is not comfortable for Ralph. Uh, and we see Maestro, and he's playing it, and he's having a great time. And the Flash is thinking, last time we fought Allegro Synthesizer, it took Black Canary's sonic cry to break the music spell, which is a reference to JLA number 131, long time ago. Uh, and it says, but there's one who moves against the music, like a man against a tide, one man who remains unaffected by the siren song for the simplest of reasons. He cannot hear. And as simply as that, the music dies. Because Allegro, who cannot hear anymore, due to the sonic scream and the fight with the Justice League uh, in 131, he can't hear the music. He's deaf. So he takes a, what believes to be a Kalashnikov, uh, an AK-47, and swings the butt end at the synthesizer, breaking it, causing the music to stop. And it's a, it, there's a callback to earlier in the issue. It says, freedom, like fantasy, it too has a price. Uh, where we see Gorky shooting Allegro through the chest, uh, killing him. Gypsy, we see Gypsy standing in front of a silhouetted version of the rest of the Justice League. And she stands in front of Gorky and she says, you're a very bad man. And suddenly, they're transported to high above... Uh, a canyon, a river going through a canyon, like way high up. And they're floating or flying. And suddenly, or we see in this sort of transportation, uh, Gorky fall to his death towards the river. But in reality, they haven't transported. They've just sort of locked eyes. And suddenly, Gorky sells, says, yeah. And Aquaman is confused and says, Gypsy, what happened? One look at you and he fell apart. Because we see, like, he's drooling and he's crying. And, and Gypsy says, I don't know. Uh, it never happened before. Maybe he didn't like my face. And Aquaman says, I don't know what to think. We'll talk about it back at League HQ. And Superman says, about League HQ, Aquaman. And Aquaman says, later. We'll work it out later. And then we see, for some reason, the jet is taking off. But standing on the ground is still Martian Manhunter. He's, he's holding the body of Allegro. And we see Dimitri and, and another person and Maestro standing to the side. So are they leaving Martian Manhunter? Is he just going to like fly back? Or why is, he, why is he there holding Allegro's body? Were they friends? I don't, I don't remember them being friends, being close, or even knowing each other. Uh, but that's the end. And we see a uh, promo for the next one. It says, next home are the heroes, dot, dot, dot. So it's going to have something to do with home. Possibly the Justice League's home headquarters in Detroit. Uh, so that's going to do it for Justice League of America number 238. Now, let's move on to the final issue in this episode, The Shadow War of Hawkman number one, uh, released February 7th, 1985, cover date May 1985, just like all the rest. And we have a couple debuts. You might be thinking, oh, well, we've already met Hawkman. Wrong. We have met Hawkman of Earth 2. This is Hawkman and Hawkgirl, who we have never met, even on Earth 2, uh, of Earth 1. 
So we have Hawkman of Earth-1, Qatar, uh, K-A-T-A-R, Hall, H-O-L, instead of Carter Hall. Uh, he debuted in Brave and the Bold, number 34, December 29th, 1960. So post The Flash, uh, creating Earth-1, and uh, I guess not creating Earth-1, but the post-start of the Silver Age when Earth-1 had the Flash of Barry Allen and the Green Lantern of Hal Jordan, all that kind of stuff. Hawk Girl, Shiera Hall, uh, instead of Shiera Hall also, but different, uh, debuted in Brave and the Bold number 34 as well uh, on that same date. And the difference in the Earths uh, for Hawkman and Hawk Girl is a confusing one. If you know anything about Hawkman and Hawk Girl, it is that on Earth 1, they are aliens. They are Thanagarians from Thanagar. Uh, which is a race of aliens that have wings and uh, bird-like motifs for things. And Carter, Qatar Hall and Shaira Hall, uh, well, at least he was a sort of policeman uh, who somehow got sent to Earth. I don't know his origin on Earth-1, because obviously we didn't cover that. It's 1960. Uh, But in this Shadow War of Hawkman, they have to deal with Thanagarians, um, sort of causing mischief. So... But on the production side, uh, it's written by Tony Isabella, penciled by Richard Richard Howell, inked by Alfredo P. Alcala, lettered by Milton Snappin, and colored by Michelle Wolfman. Oh, I wonder if she's related to Marv. Because what are the odds? Wolfman? Not a very common last name. I wonder if she's related to Marv. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, But let's get into it. As always, we'll start with the cover. Uh, it says four-part miniseries across the top. Isabella Howell and Alcala, all of the principal artists on this uh, book. It says The Shadow War of Hawkman, first shattering issue. Uh, and on the cover, we see Hawkman and Hawk Girl, which is a very diminutive uh, superhero name. I feel like Hawk Woman is, I mean, it's longer, but... It's, it's less infant, infantilizing. We see them in their red and yellow and, and green costumes. Uh, obviously, Hawkman's we've seen in, in the past in Golden Age, and, uh, and, and Hawk Girl is new, but uh, plays on the same motif. Uh, so the actual um, filling inside substance of the issue uh, starts with a... Uh, stormy night, it's raining, it's lightning, and it says the first battle in the invasion of Earth will be fought in the shadows. Uh, so we're going to have some sort of uh, clandestine activities that are going to start this shadow war. And we see a red-headed man, and he is uh, running through the rain-clogged streets, kind of holding his jacket close to his, his neck and kind of trying to keep the rain off of his regular clothes. Uh, and we learned this man is named Mousy Mason. He is a cat burglar. He is apparently very good at his job, but his career as a cat burglar has not gone well. He uh, hasn't made a lot of money, uh, or he's spent it all. Maybe he's just bad with his money because he lives in a fifth-floor walk-up on Midway City's Lower West Side. I don't know a lot about Midway City. I think it is primarily, at least at this point in time, the the city that the Hawks Hawkman, Hawk Girl cover. I don't know if any other superheroes cover it, uh, but Midway City. I mean, Midway could be St. Louis. Could be a, like a St. Louis sort of similarity. Um, 
It has skyscrapers, so... After some uh, quick Googling, I learned that Midway City is a metropolitan community in the state of Michigan uh, in the United States. It is located on the North Channel, east of uh, Sault Ste. Marie, uh, which is a very northern town uh, in Michigan that is right on the border of Canada. And there is another Sault Ste. Marie, same city, uh, basically, right across the border in Canada. Uh, And it is on the southern tip of the continent, right across from the southern tip of the Canadian province of Ontario. So it's not Detroit, because Detroit exists, but it is a city in Mansk. It's actually got a pretty good population, 800,000 as of the 1990 census. So uh, that says citation needed, so who knows uh, if that's true or not. But it did first appear in The Brave and the Bold, number 34, uh, at the same time as Hawkman and Hawkgirl. So I would presume that it's mostly just Hawkman and Hawkgirl. But if we scroll down a little bit, it looks like the Doom Patrol also works out of this area. We got Beast Boy, Celsius, Chief, Elastigirl, Negative Man, Negative Woman, Robot Man, and Tempest. Uh, and then we got a, you know, a, bunch of, a bunch of villains and a bunch of re- other regular residents, but it seems like it's primarily the territory of the Hawks. But back to the Shadow War. Uh... All along his sort of rush home, Mousy Mason has been followed or watched from the shadows by these creepy yellow eyes. And as he gets into his apartment, he calls for Wolfie, who you would think is a dog. It is not a dog. It is a cat. It's a cute little kitty. Comes out and he goes, meow. And, you know, he makes a joke because the cat is by his tools, like his thieves' tools. And he's like, oh, you, you know, you could be arrested for possession of criminal tools, Wolfie. That's how, that's how they got me last time. Uh, that's how Commissioner Emmett specifically got me last time. So I'm going to get even with Emmett. He's retired. He's off the force now and went to live somewhere else with his brother. But there's new people that live in his house. So I'm going to rob it because uh, they're never there. Uh, and at first, I did not know who these people were. Like, is, should I know who they are? But it turns out it is, the, it is Hawkman and Hawkwoman, Hawkgirl, whatever, that live there at this house. And the reason they're never there is because, A, they are the curators of the Midway City Museum, and also they are superheroes, so they have a very busy lives. When suddenly from behind Mousy Mason uh, comes a voice that says, yes, Mr. Mason, it does. And while you're looting that particular domicile of its earthly treasures, there are items you can acquire for us as well. And he's, of course, shocked. Uh, and he looks around, and coming out from the shadows, like like. It's almost like a thick ooze that's covering these people. They come out of the shadows and sort of surround him. And uh, it is it is a group of five, um, I want to say men and women, but maybe all men. Uh, they're dressed in like black sort of space futurist looking uniforms. They have uh, sort of very close cowls over their heads not covering their faces or anything and each has like a diamond of a different color either purple or red on their forehead um and so they explain that they want the anti-gravity devices of qatar hall and his wife shayera who are known as hawkman and hawkwoman oh it is hawkwoman it's not hawkgirl okay good hawkwoman is hawkgirl is so infantilizing hawkwoman good um they live in that house, the M- Emmett's old house, uh, and they have a guys as Carter and Shiera Hall, 
who are the direct, oh, I guess museum directors, not museum curators. My bad. Um, and he's, of course, like, oh, I can't steal from them. I'm just a cat burglar. They're like superheroes. I wouldn't stand a chance if they caught me robbing the place. And if I get nabbed, they'll put me away for life as a habitual offender. And they threaten him. They say that there are far worse fates than going away for prison for life. And they shoot these beams out of their hands. On that on their hand is a symbol with three dots uh, connected by lines in a sort of triangle. It looks very much like the Brainiac symbol. And I don't, obviously we don't know in this first issue if that's at all related, but it looks very much like the Brainiac symbol. And they shoot these rays off inside of Mousy Mason's house, and then they disappear. Uh, and along with that, with them leaving, is all of the furniture that was in Mousy Mason's uh, living room. And the final thing it says on this page is, the invasion has begun. Then we see, uh, it's, well, we get the title page, the Shadow War of Hawkman. And we get the credits, all that kind of stuff. And we see Hawkman and Hawkwoman taking on a group of thugs with guns. They're shooting at them, and Hawkman and Hawkwoman are taking them down pretty handily. Uh, you know, I mean, they're, they're just regular thugs. There's not any sort of challenge for Hawkman and Hawkwoman. And they wrap them up eventually with a gladiator's net. It's not important who these dudes are. They're just, you know, random thugs. Uh, Hawkman and Hawkwoman are greeted by uh, Captain Frazier, uh, who's a, a friend of theirs on the police force. He thanks them, and uh, he uh, they, they fly off uh, to presumably return to their guys as Carter Hall and, and Shayer Hall. And we then sort of get an explanation, because this is a miniseries and you don't know who's going to be reading it, and also because Hawkman and Hawkwoman haven't had a titular series since the 60s since i believe the last time that hawkman had a title with his name on it was after he joined the atom in adam and hawkman uh back in like 1968 so it's been like uh 17 years since he's had his own title uh and i mean let alone hawk woman she's never had her own title at this point in time i don't believe uh so it gives an origin story of them and what brought them to earth and i i learn uh because i always thought that the thanagarians were winged naturally but they are not uh and i guess well, i guess that's probably because of the cartoon that probably gave me that belief um because in in Justice League, in Justice League Unlimited, uh, Hawkwoman doesn't ever take her wings off. Like, they are, I'm assuming, part of her. And maybe that comes later, but right now, Thanagarians are just, they look just like people. They look just like human beings. But Carter's father, Perrin Katar, he created anti-gravity belts and these wings. So I'm assuming to guide you while you're anti-gravity. So... Um, he, you know, it's very much like an uh, Icarus and Daedalus uh, situation. I don't think he flies too close to the sun and then dies, but it's very much like father and son flying through the sky with wings. And he uh, grows up, Carter does, to become a police officer um, on Thanagar. And he is teamed up with a rookie 
a police officer, police woman named Shayera. Uh, they uh, at first don't get along, but then uh, a few weeks, it's a very fast, a few weeks later, he proposes to her to get married, and they're very happy. They then uh, volunteer, the two of them, to man the first spaceship uh, coming out of Thanagar uh, that is uh, chasing after the creature known as Bith, B-Y-T-H, a uh, shapeshifter that is has headed to Earth. Uh, and on their way there, they use a device called the Absorbascon, uh, which uh, learns all earthly knowledge uh, by reading the electronic impulses of human brains, human minds. So they they get they get all the knowledge. So they don't land being like a clueless aliens not understanding humanity. They understand it quite well. They understand all of it. Uh, and they meet George Emmett, who is the former police commissioner of Midway City, who you know, teaches them about detective work on Earth, and uh, so they decide to stay on Earth after they track down uh, Bith, uh, and they, they want to study the detective techniques uh, further. They get jobs as directors, I guess co-directors, of the Midway City Museum, and they use their cover identities as that to hide their superhero activity as Hawkman and Hawkwoman, uh, they then explain that Thanagar was uh, terrorized by what's called the Equalizing Plague, meaning making every man, woman, and child on Thanagar exactly equal in intelligence and ability, halting all progress and leaving people as a race of nigh-identical drones. Thanagar is then uh, not tricked, but convinced uh, to give power to a, a woman known as Hyathis, H-Y-A-T-H-I-S, because she's offering them a cure for the equalizing plague to bring back their differences and their, you know, different levels of abilities and stuff like that. And after that, she became a dictator of the planet and uh, was preparing it for war. But luckily, with the aid of the Justice League, Hawkman and Hawkwoman were able to save Thanagar, although it is still quite diminished and and set back because of the equalizing plague. Um, So at this point in time, we then cut back to the present, and Hawkman and Hawkwoman are flying back to the museum. Um, And they talk about their personal difficulties in their relationship uh, since they've been on Earth. Uh, I'm not sure what that is about. I know that Hawkman is a very angry guy he's got a very uh a lot of emotions a short fuse so i think that's probably maybe has something to do with it uh but they've resolved their personal difficulties and they've now they're now stronger in their relationship in their crime fighting in 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 everything and it's great for them and they then fly back to the museum because they're supposed to be setting up for a new exhibit at the museum uh and we see mavis trent who is uh, someone who works at the museum, I believe. Uh, and she is mad that they are not around. Like, where are they? They're supposed to be setting this up. I need their help. And Mavis is talking to a reporter or a press agent, I should say. So I don't know if that means he works for a newspaper or he works for the museum as a press liaison. I think it's probably he works for a newspaper. His name is Joe. Uh, I don't know if we learn his last name. But Joe reveals that Mavis doesn't like Shayera because Mavis likes Carter. Uh, and so she thinks that she would be better for him than Shayera. 
And uh, uh, what she doesn't know is that uh, Shayara and Qatar uh, can hear her uh, with their very good hearing, which I I don't know if that's a Thanagarian thing. That's a very specifically those two people kind of thing. Uh, these two, Hawk, Hawkman, Hawkwoman, uh, or what. But they can hear her. And so they, you know, they start cracking jokes about uh, Mavis Trant trying to steal Carter from uh, Shayara, and uh, you know they 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 embrace lovingly because they they love each other. Uh, and they've resolved their their like I said their relationship is stronger than ever. And uh, suddenly the intruder alarm that uh, Shayara installed on their new house, Emmett the commissioner's old house, goes off and. Qatar says, it's a good thing we hadn't yet transferred any of our Thanagarian equipment there. Uh, still, it's best if uh, I investigate as Hawkman. And Shaira, you know, is going to uh, go with, uh, and I should say this, throughout this sort of conversation they've been having, they've been post, or not post, they've been in the middle of changing out of their Hawkman, Hawkwoman costumes and into regular clothes. So they're like both only partially dressed. And, like, Carter takes his shirt back off and, and starts to undo his pants. And uh, Shayara, you know, starts taking her shirt off to put it back on her Hawkwoman costume. But uh, Carter says, I mean, one of us has to stay here and help Mavis with the exhibit. And, I mean, I'm sure you don't want me to just be, you know, left alone with Miss Trent. Who knows what sort of uh, stuff she'll get up to. And so, you know, she jokingly, you know, puts his Hawkman helmet on his head incorrectly as a joke and he flies off as Hawkman we then see in the final page the final corner of this page that Mavis Trent is outside the office of Carter Hall and, and Chiara Hall and I don't know if she overheard them talking about you know, Hawkman and Thanagar and stuff like that but it, her face looks shocked so I'm thinking maybe she did but we don't learn anything about that in this issue so maybe it'll play out in the other issues of this miniseries uh, Carter Hall, nope, Hawkman, flies to their, uh, the Hall residence, and he is, um, he, he doesn't want to, like, have to fight inside the house, because he doesn't want to wreck it, because Shayara really likes their new house, and then he lands there, and he's like, oh, the local bird life is unusually skitterish, and this is the part I don't like about the more modern version of Hawkman. I don't think he should be able to talk to birds. That's very much like... He's just, like, repurposing, like, Aquaman's shtick. And I think it's kind of lame. It's like, oh, yeah, I, I'm Hawkman. I can talk to birds. But, like, you're an alien. So what does that have to do with the birds here on Earth? And you're not even a bird. You are you wear a, a set of wings and an anti-gravity belt. I just don't know why you can talk to birds. But we cut to inside, and we see Mousy Mason. And he is kind of talking to nobody nobody's there in the room with him but he says he can't find any of the stuff that the the people want the the scary people all dressed in black he's like you have looked everywhere honest like there's nothing in here um and uh, hawkman walks up through like a window or something it's like mousy who are you talking to and uh, mousy who he must know says hawkman i mean my car broke down I, i wanted to use the phone and it was open the door i mean and uh, Hawkman grabs him by his shirt and says, Mousy, you don't have a car. You do have a rap as a rap sheet as long as my wings, which is very long. He has very big wings. Uh, so since I know why you're here, let's talk about what you're looking for and who sent you to look for it. 
And, you know, Mousy's very scared. He's terrified more of the people than of Hawkman. And Hawkman clocks this. And he's like, oh, it's not me who wanted the Annie Gravity Gizmo. They forced me into this job. Um, you got to protect me from him. And then suddenly the, the people all clad in black reveal themselves. Uh, and they, they attack Hawkman. And Hawkman is a very formidable fighter. He, he fights most of them off. Uh, but Mousy sort of gets some courage. Uh, and he grabs a broken table leg and cracks one of them over the head with it. And Hawkman is worried for Mousy because he's just a regular guy. And these people are clearly dealing with technology or abilities that are outside of his you know, realm of understanding. And so he flies over to Mousy, but he's too late. That, that you know, three dots connected by lines, brainiac-like symbol on their hands glows and shoots Mousy uh, with a beam. And he is basically vaporized. All we see is a, a white outline or a white silhouette of nothing uh, surrounded by an inky blackness. Um, the, the people, the, the people clad in black, sorry, they attempt to restrain Hawkman, uh, to deal with him when they get word that their second squad, the objective has been destroyed. We don't know what that objective is, but it's been destroyed. So the leader says, those fools, we failed. We must break off our attack here before this enraged fool actually defeats us. Uh, and he throws a weird uh, box, technological box, at Hawkman. And it goes off, and what it is is a sonic bomb, some sort of sonic bomb. And Hawkman has more acute hearing than regular people. And so it sort of incapacitates him, giving all of these people the time they need to slither back into the shadows and uh, escape. Uh, the uh, Hawkman destroys the sonic bomb with a hammer that he brought with him. And uh, he realizes that they've escaped, and he realizes that they want his anti-gravity belt, and he realizes there's only one other anti-gravity belt in existence, and especially here on Earth. He realizes that Shayera is in trouble. He flies off back to the museum, and he lands, and there are dozens of police cars surrounding the museum. Uh, and we see um, a man helping Joe, who I remember his last name is Tracy. It says it right there. Take it slow, Mr. Tracy. So Joe Tracy. He's helping him out of the museum. And Hawkman comes up and says, what's going on? And Joe uh, Tracy says, they, they came out of the freaking walls. Nobody could have stopped them. Um, and uh, Hawkman asks where, and he says the new exhibit. And Hawkman rushes inside. He meets up with... Uh, Captain Fraser from earlier. Although, in this one, he's drawn as a white guy, even though um, in the previous pages he was black. So I don't. I think that might just be a coloring error. Uh, and Hawkman gets to the new exhibit, and what he finds is an all-white silhouette of Shaira in her Hawk Woman costume, surrounded by an outline of inky blackness. Uh, and that's where it cuts off. He says Shaira with a period at the end, and that is the last page, and it says next, Fallen Angels. So that is the beginning. Uh, tragedy has struck uh, Earth One's Hawkman, and uh, it looks like we're going to have some some uh, some trouble for Hawkman on, on his hands and uh, and stuff like that. So, so yeah, 
Uh, that's going to do it for the Shadow War of Hawkman number one, and that's also going to do it for this episode. And I realize, I'm realizing, that this episode is actually sort of an anniversary episode. It's the it's the one-year anniversary of when we started, we, the royal we, I started the podcast last year. Obviously, I took a break in there because of all that kind of jazz. Um, so we're not on, like, episode 52 or whatever. We're on, uh, I guess, uh, in... In Golden Age, we're on episode, I guess, 19 will be next week. And on this one, this is episode 11. So we've got a ways to go to get an actual full year of episodes. But it in chronological time, it has been a year since we started. I'm glad to be back doing it. it, it this The addition of the this show, the Crisis show, has been a real uh, uplifter to me and to, I think to the show and to hopefully you guys as well. Uh, but enough about that. This isn't an actual anniversary because we haven't been up and running that entire time. So enough about that. Uh, as usual, hit us up on socials, Instagram, threads, Twitter. Uh, I've started uploading the crisis episodes to YouTube. Uh, if you're more of a YouTube person or people you know are more YouTube people, uh, I should put a link in the show notes or something for that. Uh, I, I can't put up some of the early regular ones, or maybe I can, because they used to be too long, but maybe they have updated. Uh, my, my hosting has updated, so I can upload videos that are longer than two hours. So maybe I'll, in time, it, it takes a bit uh, to get them uploaded. But I will get those uploaded, and then all the episodes will be available uh, on YouTube, too, if you want to listen to them there. Uh, no visuals or anything, but uh, they're there if you want to listen to them or other people want to listen to them. Uh, and I'll be posting pictures, covers, primo panels from uh, this week's issues, and all that kind of jazz. Uh, podcast stuff, rate and review it on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you want to do it. Tell your friends about it. Uh, helps out the show, helps me feel like I'm reaching people and not just talking into the ether. So until next time, see you guys all on Monday. I am your host, as always, Nick Byers, and I'll see you around. Thank you.